the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Codagenics of Farmingdale, New York, has developed the technology to precisely engineer viruses to do all sorts of things. Its current work to develop a COVID vaccine based not on that versatile newcomer, mRNA, but rather as a traditional virus-based vaccine, is not at all traditional. It would have protected against the Omicron variants even before there was an Omicron variant. In addition, it's delivered nasally. That's right, no needle. And its development now in phase three is now being supported by the World Health Organization. But there's more. The efforts of Codagenics are wide-ranging. New vaccines for RSV, influenza, yellow fever, dengue, and Zika. Also, viral-based therapeutics for cancer and more. What's important is understanding how these viruses can be engineered to have characteristics which not only deliver potency, but also are incapable of mutating into undesirable forms. It's called rational virus design. Dr. Robert Coleman is the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics. He'll explain how this approach changes what's possible in vaccine development and therapeutics in general. And it further has the ability to respond quickly and directly, as opposed to the trial and error method used before. Dr. Robert Coleman. Rob, welcome to the program. Hi, Moira. Before we get into what we can do today with better technology, I think we pretty much have all had multiple vaccinations at this point, right up to and including being vaccinated for COVID. But our vaccination started early, you know, for measles and polio and the list goes on. How would you characterize these vaccines, you know, that we took all throughout our lives uh, and how were they developed? Right. That's a, that's a great question. So, you know, the, those traditional vaccines have been extraordinarily effective at preventing disease, even starting when, when you were very young. And the best class of those sort of early childhood vaccines that we've all received, our children may have received, what are, what are called live attenuated or weakened versions of the virus that you're trying to protect against. So they would take, it's actually kind of amazing to believe it was really done through trial and error, right? So they would take the measles virus and they would passage it either at cold temperatures or in chicken cells. And it would start to not like humans so much and it would convert and it would start to mutate away from humans towards chickens. And then we'd actually use that virus to vaccinate ourselves against measles. And so those traditional vaccines have been amazing at preventing disease um, because they are live weakened versions of the virus, but they were really made through complete trial and error, random mutation of really unknown results in the virus. <laughs> the chickens, <laughs> chickens were involved yeah. in, their, in their development. They were, they were crucial like, to really one of the biggest advancements of humankind, right, has been for vaccination. And it's really through random changes, which is just kind of amazing to think about. And once you get one of those vaccines, this is what blows me away. How is the vaccine manufactured? How is it produced? They don't all use the same exact system, but some still are used. So, for example, a yellow fever vaccine is still manufactured in embryonated chicken eggs, where you inject the egg with a little bit of virus, you wait a few weeks, you harvest the vaccine stream from the egg, almost like an egg frappuccino. And that's what we're still using 
as a vaccine. And it's because we have to use the same system that made those traditional live vaccines. So that's also sort of ripe for, for innovation. But it's amazing to think about that a lot of these live vaccines that we still use sort of have an antiquated approach for production. Let me ask you, in COVID, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was called a viral vector vaccine. Is is that the same kind of thing? Uh, it's not exactly the same. They use a weakened virus, but instead it's more like a Trojan horse. So in that instance, Johnson & Johnson is using a virus called adenovirus as a way to deliver the spike protein to your immune system. So it wasn't like they took SARS-CoV-2 and put it in chickens for, for weeks on end. So they had an adenovirus expressing a piece of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID to get your immune system to make an immune response against spike. So there's a little subtle difference there between a traditional weak virus or live attenuated that has all of the proteins that you want to go against and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which I sort of like to call a Trojan horse that expresses just spike of the that you're trying to protect against. And don't forget, for all those decades, we did not have the tools to go in and edit a virus, do any of those things. We had to keep trying until we got something that, oh, that works, and then we'll, we'll yes. keep that. So we just didn't have the tools that we have today. So, so, so we can see that the, uh, the viral vaccines are, are moving ahead. At the same time, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was only 66% effective, while the other two COVID vaccines here in the United States, at least, were Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech, which are mRNA vaccines, completely different technology, were over 90% effective. Does that mean that these viral vaccines will be a thing of the past uh, and will just be going with the mRNA vaccines? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, of course, I'm slightly biased. But I mean, the common similarity between the mRNA and Johnson Johnson vaccine is what I call, they're really just antigen delivery systems, right? They're bringing an antigen to your immune system in order to engage it and have it make a lot of antibodies against said antigen that they want to target. So spike in the case of, of the COVID vaccines. And the mRNA is just very efficient at doing that. But I think we see with the current trend in COVID and variants emerging and need to update those vaccines that there's still an avenue if we can somehow figure out to make better live vaccines um, that may express not just spike, but lots and lots of proteins of the virus. Now, tell us what Codagenic does. Well, that's, I mean, so sort of to perfectly dovetail, thank you, Maura, is that, you know, if you think back to how those for traditional live vaccines were made. Well, or why were they so great is because they weren't just expressing the spike of the virus. It's actually mimicking the wild type virus. So it's expressing all proteins of the virus. And that's sort of the, the next generation codogenics approach is those traditional va vaccines may be limited in their genetic stability. So they were randomly mutated to become vaccines. And what codogenics has been able to do is we found a way to recode the DNA of a virus such that it's genetically stable now, it will not revert, and it can actually be used as a vaccine that expresses not taking COVID, for example, not just spike, but all the proteins of SARS-CoV-2 to get all the benefits of a traditional live vaccine, right? Spike and immune response, but immune response to all proteins of the virus. Well, it occurs to me that, first of all, you can take the virus you're after 
and completely decode its DNA. Yes. So it's actually a completely digital. So the way Codagenics really does it is the commonality for all human virus is your body, your nose, take COVID, for example, or your cells. They want to come in or the virus wants to come in, make a trillion copies of itself in as little as eight hours. Now, that's a big number. But the virus wants that process to be very, very efficient. So it's made its genes very, very favorable for translation efficiency or production in the human host cell. And so what we've done is our platform, unlike the other platforms, which I classify as antigen delivery, ours is really a software. So we have now understand how you can encode genes for very, very favorable translation or production in the human body. And how you can encode a gene for very, very slow translation in the human body. And so what we can do is we can take the DNA sequence of a virus that's very fast. We can recode it for slow translation. We can insert that piece of DNA back into their genome. And now we've converted wild type pathogen virus that makes you very sick into live attenuated vaccine. And it's universally applicable to viruses because it's not focused on one protein. It's not focused on random mutation. Instead, it's an algorithm that understands how to recode its DNA for, for slow translation. So simply by slowing down how fast it replicates, you're yes. weakening it, number yeah. one. Yeah. So when you say, okay, in, in one sense, if they could have done that 100 years ago, what great shape they would have been. How do we slow down the virus? And then... Right now we're saying, well, what do we have to hit? You know, we're trying to get very excited about it. And you're saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff we may not know. If we can slow down the whole thing, then the aspects that we don't yet understand won't matter because they'll be engaged in the human host. Right. Wow, i got to write on that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Sometimes they say, well, it's not like that at all. So I'm really thrilled. I'm really thrilled. Now... I just want to ask a slightly different question here. I know that the the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna uh, COVID vaccines had to be in these special freezers from the or or refrigerators, deep deep freeze, deep deep cold, from the point they were refrigerated to the point of delivery. Is that also true with these viral vaccines? Uh, no, that's actually so. Yeah, you can see that. In order to keep the RNA stable, they have to use minus 80 degrees Celsius freezers. They have to ensure that the repository has those freezers. You see that they want to make the, expand this ultra-cold chain to sort of increase mRNA uptake around the globe. One of the best aspects of weak virus vaccines is that they usually only require a standard freezer or refrigerator. Sometimes they can even be lyophilized or turned into powder that can be reconstituted. And as you can see, and sort of one of the best examples for this is smallpox, right? In order to eradicate smallpox, they had a very you know standard refrigeration or lyophilization for the vaccine. They didn't need to make freezer farms around the world uh, in order to eradicate smallpox. And so that's sort of one of the traditional benefits and global access for live vaccines is their ability to be, you know, stored in sort of standard conditions. Now, you've just finished phase two, going into phase three. I think you've started phase three, the last phase of clinical trial before approval um, uh, on your own COVID vaccine. And I understand that this work at, at Codagenics is supported by 
the WHO. Now, there are easily a dozen COVID vaccines around the world. Why are they supporting your particular endeavor? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It sort of you know, speaks to your last point. And I think the actual number on the WHO chart is 194 next generation oh. vaccine candidates. And why did they select Codagenics was, well, firstly, they I think the WHO recognizes the benefit of live vaccines, right? And what they're capable of doing. But more importantly, what we've been able to show with our COVID vaccine, well, firstly, it's intranasal. Um, so it can has a potential to block transmission, induce mucosal immunity. But we showed in our phase one was demonstration of efficacy or potential for efficacy, excuse me, potential for a global distribution. So our, we're partnered with Serum Institute India that has massive ability to, for commercial scale of the product. But more importantly, some of the data from our phase one was that we showed, not only did we show 100% antibody or zero response rate in the participants, we showed the induction of mucosal immunity that could slow down replication of a SARS-CoV-2 virus. And to me, the coolest piece of data that sort of circle back, circles back to your original question, Moira, is when we looked at the T-cells or the cellular immune system response to our vaccine, we saw that all of the participants, or on average, the participants in the vaccinated group made a five-fold increase in their anti-Omicron cellular immune response. So it included Omicron. <laughs> well, the cool, well, I didn't actually get to the coolest part yet. The what? coolest part is that this trial was done in early 2021. So this is when the individuals were being vaccinated. When we measured their T-cell response was towards the end of 21, but they made this Omicron response before the Omicron strain was actually prevalent. And they made the response to all the other proteins of SARS-CoV-2, not just Spike. And and so this is why sometimes live vaccines are called the sort of gold standard, where they may only require a few doses. They pro provide very, very long-term immunity. It's because they cover the span of the proteins in the virus. And to me, that's the coolest thing, right? Our vaccine recipients made an anti-Omicron cellular immune response before the virus was even on the scene. Well, that is exciting. I have to tell you, there are some people listening, a few of my friends among them, who held out for the Johnson & Johnson virus because it was only one shot. Big, strapping guys who were afraid. They said, just give me one shot. So when they hear, this is intranasal, you're just going to spray this up my nose, they'll be the first in line. You know, it's like, so you don't have to have a shot. And we don't know how big the uh, immunity will be. But we know that you're not just focused on the one spike protein. You're saying, well, let's just take the whole cell. Let's just take the whole virus and, uh, and, and use that. That's very exciting. Especially because the proteins that, so why are variants emerging is because the spike protein is the virus that, the, is the protein of the virus that mutates the most, right? Trying to avoid antibodies. All the other proteins that sort of run that the machinery of the virus, they mutate very, very slowly. And that's actually what you make your cellular immune response against. And so if you can have vaccines that induce cellular immunity to the, to the proteins that don't mutate as rapidly, you can get this very, very, very broad immune response. And we're hoping to show that in the, the WHO trial. It's a placebo-controlled trial. It's occurring Africa, potentially South America, potentially Southeast Asia. 
And right now we're, you know, it has a daunting task in the sense that it's a placebo controlled trial looking for efficacy against Omicron. And I think we have real potential to do that based on what we saw in, in our early clinical development. So now let's uh, talk about vaccines and cancer. Cancer is not an infectious disease. I mean, we don't usually think of cancer and vaccines. What are you doing in that space? Yeah, well, I would, you know, I think sometimes people see the cotogenics oncology vertical that we're growing and they use the word cancer vaccine. It's not actually a cancer vaccine. Instead, we're designing viruses that we can inject into tumors that help recruit the immune system to the tumor and help clear the tumor. So it's really a next generation immune oncology therapy. It's not a cancer vaccine. Um, sorry to correct you, but uh, okay, no, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> what we found, though, is that what we found is that the algorithm, once we started designing these viruses for it to be safe and immunogenic vaccines, we also learned that the algorithm that understands the human genome and how to encode the genes can also be used when appropriately implemented to design viruses that are very, very potent treatments for solid tumors. And I think the way to sort of separate what Cotagenics is doing from other, you know, the fields called oncolytic viruses or viruses to treat cancer is that we can take the inverse, the opposite approach. So most people have one virus and they're trying to see which cancers they work in. And so we can leverage Cotagenics algorithm to instead take the opposite approach, pick a cancer, screen viruses, design a cancer against, uh, excuse me, a virus against that cancer. And now we've had a custom immune oncology agent for whatever cancer indication you're pursuing. And, and sort of really Cotagenics is in the virus design business. We leverage the human genome. We leverage synthetic biology, the, the ability to design DNA however we want. And now we can design viruses, either turning them into prophylactic vaccines to protect against infectious diseases like COVID or RSV or dengue, or we can use the same algorithm to design a virus that's safe and also really likes to infect, kill, and, and recruit the immune system to a tumor. Now, let me get this straight. In all of these cases, you are building, engineering, designing viruses, and it's when you finally get to something you like, you take that virus and you replicate the virus, and that virus is exactly what you're injecting. In the case of of the the COVID vaccine uh, and its trial, now you're injecting that internasally, right into my nose. Yes, just giving me the virus. But we've been. Sh I mean. It wasn't right off the shelf, right? First, we had to show to the regulators <laughs> that it was safe and, you know, safe and preclinical. It was safe in phase one. And and also to sort of circle back to the initial problem that Cotagenics can solve is that, keep in mind, you know, those traditional live vaccines usually rely, or traditional live weak vaccines usually rely on a limited number of genetic changes. What Cotagenics does is we insert hundreds, sometimes thousands of genetic changes that make the virus unable to revert. And so we can actually pull the vaccine strain out of the noses from our COVID trial. Now, there was a little bit in there. It, it wasn't very high level. Every the, uh, the safety profile was great. But more importantly, when we pulled the vaccine out, there were no mutations in the, in the designed region showing, we, uh, really proving the concept of supreme genetic, stabi uh, genetic stability using our design approach. So once you spray it in my nose, I got it in my nose forever? 
No, 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 no. It, it goes. <laughs> so the wild type would be there for eight, nine days, you know, orders of magnitude shedding capable of spread, right, to other individuals. Ours was there for a few days below, for the most part, the threshold for spread. And it disappeared within a few days, too. But when we would wait for the tail end to see if we could find it, we would sequence, you know, with, with, um, we would we would sequence the virus and we could show there were no mutations, uh, which I think the regulators really responded to as well. How many people work at Codagenics? Uh, right now we're at 28 individuals. 28 um, people. <laughs> and growing and growing. <laughs> well, you're not going to get to 28,000 in the next week. You got 28 no. people. You've partnered with people. You're sponsored. You've partnered with Serum Institute India. You've got, and that's just, this is just on the COVID. And you've got uh, WHO supporting you. Uh, you've got all of the other vaccines that you're working on. I'm very interested. How did Codagenics get started? Who, were, who who was involved? How did this all come to be? Well, that's that's a great question too. So we came from. So I was actually the graduate student pipetting, you know, some of the first work that became the core of Codagenics. My other co-founder, uh, Stefan Mueller, our st- chief scientific officer, to me one of the most pivotal, you know, players in early synthetic biology, and then the third founder, Eckerd Wimmer was the first to actually synthesize a virus completely from small oligonucleotides, National Academy of Science member. So the three of us nucleated the company. We raised our initial money from NIH, and then investors got interested. So the company started at just two individuals, and now we're up, up to 28. And we emerged from you know, probably one of the earliest synthetic biology labs there was at Ecker's lab at Stony Brook University. Well, let me let me uh, translate a little of this. Um, sure. uh, synthetic biology is when you literally uh, you don't just deal with a small part of a virus or a small part of DNA uh, in any kind of cell. Um, it means that you program the whole thing. You take yes. the whole thing and you program the whole thing, and it works and it is alive. So that's part of it. But I have never heard before that ha- anyone saying that they 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 these people got together and nucleated the company. <laughs> what you did is you gave it the whole DNA, and that's how the company got started in a, in yes. a synthetic biology sense. <laughs> sure, exactly. I mean, the, the thing is, if the, what you think about what Ecker did and our lab did with that viral synthesis was, you know, if you could take small pieces of DNA that you essentially ordered through your computer and you could stitch that together to make a virus, you're no longer bound by this to the natural sequence of the virus to make designs, to learn, to mutate it, right? Those are traditional weak vaccines, really were just variations of the natural sequence, right? They were just mutated in a chicken, as we said, or cold temperatures. If you can order the virus and design it on your computer, you can now mutate it extensively. And that's really what Codagenics has done. We understand how to encode human genes to slow them down. And now we can leverage our experience with stitching this design DNA into a virus. And now we've developed a platform that, again, is not an antigen delivery, right? We're not using adenovirus to carry spike or a virus-like particle. We have an algorithm where you input the wild-type sequence. It gets redesigned into a slow new sequence that has hundreds of mutations that when we put back it into the virus, it converts it from wild type that makes you sick 
into one that can be an effective vaccine presenting all proteins to the, the immune system. Well, I, I now understand why your motto is uh, engineering viruses to transform global health. But I'd like to I'd like to suggest another one. Just uh, it's really sure. simple. Chicken free. I think <laughs> I think that's where you should go with it. I can see the logo. I can see it. I want one of the T-shirts when you do your chicken-free okay. chicken T-shirt campaign. We'll make some. Okay. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and, and talk to us again. Yeah, I'd love to give you an update sometime in the new year on, on as the data is rolling in across the programs, Maura. Dr. Robert Coleman is the co-founder and CEO of Codagenics in Farmingdale, New York. Since this recording, the rise of RSV in infants and young children and the impact of increased hospitalizations in pediatric wards has been widely reported in the mainstream media. There are no currently approved vaccines. Codagenics' nasally delivered RSV vaccine has been fast-tracked by the FDA. The initial study in healthy children aged six months to five years is expected to begin in early 2023, after this year's RSV season, with a confirming study in the 2023-2024 RSV season. More information is available at codagenics.com. That's CODA, C-O-D-A, Genics, G-E-N-I-X, codagenics.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.